mistakes we talk about today, every human, except Jesus, every human makes them. My all-time favorite radio commercial was about a mistake. The scene is a hospital room. You can hear all the machines beeping, and uh, you hear a lady kind of groaning and waking up, and the doctor's voice says, Mrs. Smith, you're in recovery. Oh, that's good. No, it's not good. Uh, we made a mistake. What? What kind of mistake? We accidentally removed your liver. By the way, this is only funny because no doctor has ever done that, okay? We accidentally removed your liver. My liver? How long can I survive without a liver? 10. Years? Nine. Eight. <laughs> seven. <laughs> it only aired once. I only heard it one time. Somebody must have understandably complained because they, they didn't understand the import of being able to laugh at mistakes and it got pulled. That's too bad because that's sheer greatness. Um, Liberty Mutual Insurance, our neighbors right down the road, they one time had a very successful television ad campaign based on the fact that human beings inevitably make mistakes. Do you remember? Here, here's one of the spots. Didn't get human. the basket. Some of us are great athletes. Others, not so much. Which is why at Liberty Mutual Insurance, auto policies come with features like new car replacement and guaranteed repairs. See what else comes standard at LibertyMutual.com. Liberty Mutual Insurance. Responsibility. What's your Most of our mistakes are more mundane, but they still have consequences. Like this story. I want to read you a story from Pam Vredebelt's book, uh, Angel Behind the Rocking Chair. Uh, Pam tells this story. She says, um, Lydia and her husband know all about unintentional errors. She was telling me about a time when she and her husband were having lunch together. He pulled his white, no-frills handkerchief out of his back pocket, unfolded it, and vigorously blew his nose. After a few good snorts, he folded the hanky corner to corner, crease to crease, and neatly slipped it into his back pocket. He looked up and noticed her mouth gaping in surprise. What? He said. Do you always fold your hanky like that after you've used it? Yes. Matter of fact, I do. Is that a problem? Lydia just shook her head. 25 years of marriage, I had no idea you folded your hanky like that after blowing your nose. Will you tell me why this is such a big deal? I'm very sorry to tell you this, sweetheart, but when I'm doing the laundry and I find that hanky so neatly folded in your back pocket, I assume it hasn't been used. So I simply put it back in your drawer without washing it. <laughs> this time his drawer dropped open, but after a brief pause, a smirk crossed his face and he chuckled, no wonder I've had such a hard time getting my glasses clean. That's disgusting. She finishes with this, unintentional errors, mistakes, some tickle our funny bone and make us laugh, others haunt us and keep us awake in the middle of the night. As Pam points out, some mistakes can make life really, really hard. Now, in my experience, these three seem to be tops on the kinds of errors that make life hurt. There are others, there are lots of others, but these three kinds of mistakes seem to cause the most deep and lasting pain. Relational pains, interpersonal struggles. Bad theology pounded in your head by others or stinking thinking that arises in your own mind. Think about those. Don't relational conflicts upset your stomach? Bad thinking, it hurts all of our lives, whether it originates with ourselves or in someone else. Those lies that are set on shuffle and repeat in your head, they cause serious, serious problems. 
as horrible as physical errors may be, over the long term, they do not compare to the pain caused by mental, emotional, and spiritual blunders. So, let's learn how to deal with those mistakes. Open your Bible to the book of Job, which speaks to this with unmatched clarity and relevance. Very, very immediate here, very relevant. We're gonna start with the interpersonal mistakes. Of the three kinds, we're gonna start with the interpersonal ones. There's two of them in Job, and uh, we'll begin in Job 11. Go to Job chapter 11 with Zophar's error. Zophar's error, by the way, is name-calling. He calls a name. Look at this, chapter 11, verse 12. We don't have time to read all the passages today. We're gonna choose a, a part that illustrates the whole. Zophar says to Job, but a stupid man will gain understanding as soon as a wild donkey is born a man. As we summarize on the left side of your notes, look inside your bulletin there. Zophar's error is name-calling. The Hebrew shows the depth of this. The word we translate stupid is the Hebrew term navuv. Uh, navuv's a really rare word. Uh, I mean, Zophar had to purposely stretch for this one. It is rare not just in the Bible, it's rare in all of Semitic literature, and it means empty. And, and by the way, it's paired with this word understanding and it rhymes in the Hebrew, those two words rhyme. So this shows that Zophar didn't just say this glibly off the tip of the tongue. He had planned this, he'd been preparing this statement. He's calling Job an empty-headed numbskull. He's being Biff the bully and he's got McFly's head and he's going, hello, McFly, anyone home? That's what he's doing. He's saying, you're not gonna get wise, Job, until wild donkeys give birth to human babies, which is a really gross way of saying never. Right? Not only is Zophar rude, his theology is really wonky. You know what his theology is? He is convinced that if anything rough happens in your life, it must be your fault. Okay, look, look at what he says, his next utterance, verse 14. If there's iniquity in your hand, remove it. Don't allow injustice to dwell in your tents. Then you'll hold your head high, free from fault. You'll be firmly established and unafraid. This is basic retribution theology. It's a fancy theological word. I don't want to burden you with it, but it's, it's one of those that's kind of important that we know. So on the count of three, you'd say retribution theology. One, two, three, retribution theology. It means that you get what you deserve. Um, it's half true, but it leaves no room for a sovereign God. That's why retribution theology is the default view of paganism, pantheism, and atheism. Everything is human fault. Everything is karma. If you do good, you get good. Now, we're gonna talk about the pain of mistaken theology, and retribution theology is mistaken in a moment, but I want you to notice here what happens. Zophar's bad theology makes him call a fellow Yahweh worshiper, and there weren't many of those when this was written thousands of years ago. A fellow Yahweh worshiper, he calls him an empty-headed numbskull who cannot become wise until Pinocchio's curse works in reverse, right? Thank goodness we never do that, right? Let me show you a list of names. I copied these from social media just this week. This is one week. I looked at places where Christians were arguing over theological issues on social media. And these are the words I saw believers in Jesus Christ use of other Christians, not, not heretics, not people who aren't believers, of other Christians. Fool, ridiculous, simple-minded, bless his heart. If you're not from the South, that is the ultimate insult. Okay, it's the ultimate insult. I can tell who wrote that is from somewhere in the South. Scary, insane, someone who needs removed from the gene pool. These are Christians talking about other Christians. Now, of course, only other Christians do that. We here, we don't ever make the mistake of calling people names, do we? Never. Uh-huh. Liar. Just think, think about this. Think about a painful name that someone has called you, okay? 
Something that reduced you to a trait or made fun of you or showed you less value. Okay, think about that. Don't say the name. Don't think of it. Just, just think of it right now. Think of that name. You, it's not hard to pull up that thing you were called. Now, with that in mind and all the pain that goes with it, let me ask you this. Is there any chance that somebody else is being asked that question somewhere in the world right now and the name they're thinking of is something you called them? Any chance you and I are Zophar in somebody else's life? You see, we like to cast ourselves as Job in this story, but, but we can very easily slip into Zophar's role. Let's do this. Raise your hand if you have ever resorted to name-calling. You've ever resorted to name-calling. Okay, it would appear that Zophar's error is not all that rare. Now, let's discuss how to respond. How do we respond when we're being insulted and reduced by name-calling? Job gives a perfect answer. Chapter 12, uh, it goes all the way through chapter 12 and 13. Let's just read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12. You'll get the idea. Then Job answered, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I also have a mind. I'm not inferior to you. Who doesn't know the things you're talking about? Job shows us how to reject this kind of foolish input. First, don't let anybody be the sum of wisdom for you. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, not the fear of people. That's the issue behind the sarcasm in verse 2. Yeah, yeah, Zophar, you are the ultimate in humanity. When you're gone, there won't be any wisdom left. It's a sarcastic way to say, I'm going to stick with Yahweh, thanks. Your bad feedback is not going to be allowed in my head. Speaking of head, verse 3 has a second big idea. When we're going to reject foolish input, use your brain. Job thinks for himself. There's nothing new here. Just because this kind of feedback hurts doesn't mean it's going to drive his mind. Now listen, don't misunderstand. Job is not saying that he knows everything and he cannot be taught. That's not it. He's just rejecting obviously flawed thinking and ugly name-calling. We've got to do the same. Kids, listen very carefully. Kids, this really applies in your world. Reject foolish input. How are you going to do it? You're going to care most about God's opinion, and you're going to use your mind. Second interpersonal mistake is Eliphaz's error. Another one of Job's three companion buddies. Eliphaz's error is a lack of compassion. Uh, we pick up his speech back in chapter 5. Turn back to Job chapter 5. And let's read verses uh, 15 through 17. He, Eliphaz is talking about uh, God, he saves the needy from their sharp words and from the clutches of the powerful so the poor have hope. And injustice shuts its mouth. See how happy the man is, God corrects? So do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. Eliphaz's problem is all about tone. Okay, now listen, he actually shares truth. God does do amazing things when we are needy. God's discipline is a blessing in correcting our lives. But later in the book, we're going to see God really angry at Eliphaz because of his tone. Eliphaz took good theology and he warped it. You know how he did it? He threw it in the face of someone who was suffering. He shows an amazing lack of compassion. I remember when our son was newly diagnosed with his disabling mental illness. We received two kinds of well-meant well-intentioned, but really unhelpful responses, okay? One type of response was the person who would write, um, we're so sorry to hear of your child's death sentence. We know the odds are stacked hard against him. As ones who've lost a child ourselves, we advise you to just prepare your hearts now. I didn't receive any notes like that from anyone I knew, but I got quite a few of those from wonderful people around the world who heard about our plight and prayed for us, and, and I was very thankful that they wrote. However, that note is completely unhelpful because it is utterly devoid of compassion. 
You see, this is somebody who is still hurting so badly themselves, understandably, that they don't want to watch anyone else suffer. It's a perfect example of misguided empathy getting in the way of healthy compassion. The second kind of note did sometimes come from sweet people that we knew, and it read some form of this. We are so excited about how God's gonna use this. We know that God works all for good, and this is no doubt gonna be used to accomplish awesome things in so many lives. <clears throat> At the Bema, the judgment seat where Christians are judged before Jesus, I fully expect that my greatest reward is gonna be that I never punched one of those people in the mouth. <laughs> Pretty sure. That's Eliphaz. However true, and, and it is true, it's horribly lacking in compassion. How to respond then? What do we do with a lack of compassion? Do what Job does. You know what he does? Makes his need clear. He does so. No uncertain terms. Look at his response. Chapter 6. Uh, let's just read 14 through 17. Job says to Eliphaz and to all three of his buddies, a despairing man should receive loyalty from his friends, even if he abandons the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are as treacherous as a wadi, as seasonal streams that overflow and become darkened because of ice and the snow melts into them. The wadis evaporate in warm weather. They disappear from their channels in hot weather. Oh my goodness, this is so clever. Look, look, look. Job uses the word moss as the very first word in his sentence in Hebrew. He starts with moss. It's apparently a really hard word to translate. Despairing is fine but it doesn't really capture the brilliant image. Moss is a Hebrew word for something that is melting, okay? Job says, my life is melting away. And this is especially significant because he then goes on to describe these swollen seasonal rivers, wadis, that are in flood with snow melt. Do you see that? Job's telling us his life is already flooded. He certainly doesn't need his pals to dump more ice water into his life. Wadis in Israel uh, are, are notorious for flash flooding. I have seen it there a number of times. Uh, they're dry in the summer and uh, dry almost all year, and then suddenly, whenever there's rain, usually in fall or winter, they will, be, they will be gushing and flash flooded. Job is already flooded. He does not desire more runoff of the mouth, dampening the winter of his life. If he had Twitter, if he had Twitter, I'm convinced Job would have sent his friends this video to illustrate. This is Good Samaritan Hospital in Nebraska. The river has already broached its banks. The cafeteria of this flooded when suddenly more rain downstream and this comes rushing into, these are the security cameras. One cafeteria was harmed in the making of this film. No patients were harmed. Isn't that awesome? Look at that. That's Job. I was already flooded. I didn't need you. None of that is helpful. Even when he's wrong, he needs, from his, friend, he needs his friends to be loyal. By the way, he uses my favorite Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed. It, it, hesed does not mean you lie. No, don't, don't misunderstand. He isn't asking people to pretend that he's right if he is indeed wrong. That would make no sense with a word like hesed. Because hesed has to do with truth. It has to do with loyalty and love that is built on truth and goodness and cannot be shaken. What he's asking for is loving kindness, the kind of friendship that stands with you first and then corrects you as is needed. The light was out, and my college roommate Brad was talking about his problems as we lay on our beds. It was dark. I was listening, and I was talking, and I was answering him when suddenly, all of a sudden, the light clicked on and really bright from Brad's nightstand, and Brad sat up in bed, and he looked over at me, and he said, Wayne, I need you to shut up. Don't fix anything. I just want you to listen and be present. 
Never forgot that input. Actually, it was the best preparation for marriage that I ever got from any conversation. <laughs> That's what Job does. When his friends, however accurate, when they're uncompassionate, he makes his need clear. I need you to shut up. I need you to listen and be present. All right. That's the interpersonal mistakes. Now let's talk about the theological mistakes. They're on the right side of our notes. Remember, theology is the study of God. That's what theology means, theology is study of God. Nothing is more significant than how we think about God. That's why A.W. Tozier was correct when he said the quote that I put in your notes, the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you picture God. I have seen this in my own life history. There have been seasons when I realized, subconsciously, I realized that when I was praying, I was picturing the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> now, the, the grandness of that might be fine, but what's the problem? What's the problem with me picturing God as the Lincoln Memorial? It's dead. It's not alive. The spark has gone, the stench remains. There's nothing there, right? It's a dead, cold idol. I'm praying to an idol. So other times I've caught myself, I don't know about you, but I've caught myself when I'm praying, picturing God as a wild storm. And that's not totally inaccurate, as we'll see later in Job. But it's not enough. A storm, however powerful they are, is absolutely nothing compared to the creator of all things. And at one point, this is really embarrassing, at one point in my life, I realized that when I was praying, I was picturing Gandalf. <laughs> yeah. This is before the movies came out, so I wasn't picturing Ian McKellen, thank God. <clears throat> but even though, even though my Gandalf was very physically imposing, it, he makes a paltry God, right? Pretty pitiful. What about you? What do you picture? Jesus wants people to have truth about God in our heads. We picture truth. That's why he says to all of us wayward Samaritans in this world, he says what he says in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well in Samaria. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in what, everybody? Okay, that was, <clears throat> speaking of pitiful and paltry, spirit and truth. That was, that was awful. Spirit and truth is worthy of a little enthusiasm. God is spirit. Those who worship us worship in what, everybody? There you go, that's the ticket. Theological mistakes. How you think about God has more power to harm you than anything else in your life. We all struggle with this. We all struggle to stay on base in our view of God because God is spirit and we are limited to think physically. So every one of us is beset with bad theology, untruth, it's all around us, it's within us. Again, <clears throat> nothing has really changed since the book of Job was written. There are three examples of stinking thinking in Job. Okay, uh, one originates outside of Job, the other two actually come up from within his own mind. Let's start in Job chapter eight, uh, verses six through seven with Bildad's error. Job had three friends that were off base, one friend who was really sharp we talked about last time. This is the third of the friends. You, did, you knew I wouldn't leave him out, right? Oh, so here's Bildad's error, uh, verses, verses six through seven. If you are pure and upright, he says to Job, then you will move even now. Then he, God, will move even now on your behalf and restore the home where your righteousness dwells. Then, even if your beginnings were modest, your final days <clears throat> will be full of prosperity. Bildad's error is what we referenced earlier and is made by some degree by all three of his uh, bosom buddies here. Theologians call this particular form of it prosperity retribution. Now, we earlier talked about retribution theology. It works like this chart. Um, if you do good, then you are what, everybody? 
blessed, you get gain. If you do evil, then you are cursed, you get loss, all right? That's retribution theology. Now, for much of life and for much of the scripture, that formula is actually true. It's actually true. However, it lacks the intervention of a sovereign God who does things beyond what we can see and understand. Without the covenant sovereignty of Yahweh, retribution theology always devolves into paganism, pantheism, or atheism. Always. And in verse 7, Bildad adds another wrinkle here. His is not just retribution theology, it's prosperity retribution. This also has a measure of truth. Folks, it really is true. If you act wisely, the norm is that your prosperity grows. For example, in our own country, in the United States of America, research has shown, unequivocally shown, that there are three very simple steps that if someone follows, it is difficult to remain impoverished. It's actually hard to remain in poverty if you do these three things in America today. Graduate from high school, marry before having children, and keep a steady job. It doesn't matter what the job is. And by the way, the validity of this can just be shown by the fact that the first group to uncover this is the Brookings Institution, and it was not at all what they were looking for. It didn't fit their narrative at all, but they were wise enough to publish it anyhow. The point is, prosperity retribution has some merit. However, it sadly contains some really dirty bathwater with that baby, all right? Bildad is making the same mistake we hear all the time from our prosperity gospel preachers today. It is an error that especially preys on the poor and the hurting. The great lie inherent in retribution prosperity is that suffering automatically proves that you are out of line with God's will. To the prosperity person, hurt becomes something to fix, always fix, instead of something through which we learn. Now, even if you don't go to a prosperity falsehood church, please understand that you and I are susceptible to Bildad's error. We are. Just think about it. Understandably, when you and I get hurt, what we want immediately is a fix, right? That's okay, but not if it means we get sucked into prosperity retribution, because when we do that, we take God off his throne and we make it all about us. What if Jesus had done that? Do you realize he was abused all through his earthly ministry? There was absolutely no prosperity. But Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, suffered and died on the cross just to carry out God's plan for the world. When we slip into Bildad's stinking thinking, we forget what Jesus promised us. Remember what he promised us? That we would suffer as he did. He promised we would suffer. Okay, how to fight through. What, what should we do when Bildad's error, prosperity retribution, is rattling in our skulls? What do we do? It's really simple. Remember good theology. Good theology drives out bad. Listen to how Nehemiah deals with this. Nehemiah chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 17. Nehemiah is praying. He says, they, our forebears, refused to listen, did not remember your wonders you performed among them. They became stiff-necked, and they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in faithful love, and the word he uses is hesed, and you did not abandon them. How beautiful is that? This prayer of Nehemiah comes at a really critical moment, a big moment of revival in post-exile Judah. Ezra and Nehemiah are getting some theological messes untangled here, and Nehemiah prays through their history. Now, this verse tells us a lot. Look, look, bad theology. Nehemiah summarizes it so nicely. Bad theology always has these three characteristics. It won't listen to God, it follows humans, and it always leads back to slavery. That's what bad theology does. 
By contrast, Nehemiah shows us good theology. He clears his head with good theology. He fills his head with this, God's forgiveness by grace. Good theology remembers God's compassion. Good theology remembers God isn't like humans. He's not quick-tempered. Good theology remembers God's hesed. And good theology remembers God's mercy. Do you want to get your stinking thinking under control? Immerse yourself in good theology. David Wade serves on our pulpit team, that great group that evaluates and helps me craft our messages here. Looking at my notes for this this message, David wrote me this excellent testimony. He said, <clears throat> Wayne, on a personal note, I fight daily with my own stinking thinking about God, and I fully agree that remembering good theology, especially God's hesed, is the best antidote. Memorizing, reciting, and praying over those verses that emphasize his hesed readjusts my thinking to lift my eyes to him and off of myself. Close quote. Pam Vredevelt also addresses this in her book. Look at this. She wrote, In good theology, God gives a glimpse of his glory when it's dark, when we're afflicted, when plans fall apart, when circumstances try to squeeze the life from us, when hell seems near, when we're obeying God's word, even in our weakness and discouragement, when we are standing against the majority to fight for what is right. Good theology gives us a glimpse of God's glory when we're choosing to believe in spite of a deep longing to throw in the towel, when life feels like, and it often does, one long string of mistakes, when we're enduring difficult people who make false accusations, chronic complaints, or don't seem to care, when we're prying our fingers off of whatever we hold dear so that our hands are open to receive whatever God wants to give. Close quote. Good theology makes all the difference in every situation. Now, let's look at our second example of mistaken theology. It's in 9.16. This is Job's first error. Job's one of his own. His error is he thinks of Yahweh as only removed. Uh, chapter 9, verse 16. <clears throat> Pardon me. If I summoned him and he answered me, I do not believe he would pay attention to what I said. I don't have to read any more for you to understand. It's pretty simple and clear. Job understands that God is transcendent. That is, the, the Lord is beyond human limitations. But Job leaves out God's eminence. God does care about each person he's created and is most certainly paying attention. As we have discussed before, the Bible reveals that Yahweh is the eminent covenant God. That is, he is with us as well as beyond us. This important theological combination in true biblical theology recognizes both. You've got to have both. God's eminence, that is his holy presence, and his transcendence, his holy otherness. This is a mysterious mistake that Job's got in his poor hurting head. It, it, it's the same mistake that caused me to pray to a Lincoln Memorial kind of God, right? Forgetting that he's imminent. Now, the opposite problem is also destructive. This isn't in this particular text, but it is in others. Let, let, me, let me tell you, the opposite problem, if you leave out God's transcendence, his holy otherness, what you end up with is a kind of indulgent grandpa kind of God who just gives you whatever you want, right? If you have an only eminent God, then you have, a, you have a God who says, oh, that's okay, just whatever you want, honey. I'm not even sure that's wrong anymore. That's fine. That's, that's what happens. It's not what's going on in Job, but it is certainly an error we see a lot today. The reality is anything that sees God as less than fully eminent and fully transcendent is stinking thinking. How to fight through? Remember God's engagement. 
If you've lost God's eminency, remember his engagement. We discussed this last time. It's really well covered in Job. But Nehemiah is dealing with these same issues, and he is so pithy about it. I think it helps to read his prayer. So let me read again from Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, verse 12. This is, he goes on with his prayer. You, God, led them with a pillar of cloud by day and with a pillar of fire by night to illuminate the way they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them impartial ordinances, reliable instructions, and good statutes and commands. Two big ideas here, and they are life-changing. God guides and God speaks. God guides and God speaks. I was playing racquetball once uh, with one of our, our former pastors here, and as we talked, this great guy shared that he was really hurting and confused. Uh, not about racquetball, although he wasn't very good at that. But... Um, but he was confused about some changes in his life. He's going through a lot of changes, and, and, and I listened. And then he said something really fascinating. He said, do you think God really guides us? Because I'm feeling nothing. Wayne, I feel nothing. I feel no guidance at all. I sympathized with him. I just let him talk. I had learned my lesson. And then I asked him, well, tell me this. What would you say to somebody else? What, what does the Bible say about that? And he this was fascinating. He thought for a minute and he went to the exact same thing Nehemiah did. He went to God's engagement with his guidance of Israel. And then he went to the New Testament and he talked about how Jesus calls the Holy Spirit that God gives the paraclete. This guy's a good theologian and he said paraclete means, it means the one who walks beside and guides. And, and then he went on to talk about how God's word guides us and, and how the scripture, God speaks through his word. He looked up after he'd been talking for quite a while and he said, oh, I guess I answered my own question, didn't I? And I said, yeah, or rather God did. God, God guides and God speaks. He is engaged. We must remember that, especially when we're feeling nothing. We need to set our minds on the truth. Now, since we're discussing mistakes, let me ask you this. Have you ever made a mistake that shames you to this day? All right? You know the kind. We laugh about it, but you don't laugh privately. The horrible error that Satan whispers in your ear that you're beyond repair, that if anybody knew about this mistake, they would reject you and they'd be right to do so, right? When we are interviewing staff here or elders, we always ask this question, what in your past will be an embarrassment to us when it comes out? What in your past is gonna embarrass us when it inevitably is found out? We don't ask that to shame anyone, no, because we, as we know and as you're going to see, there is no sin in a Christian's life for which Jesus has not paid the price. There is no sin in the life of a believer in Jesus for which Jesus has not paid the price. The reason we ask is because we want to know what to expect. It's not a fun thing to be surprised when the people with the pitchforks and torches come after your organization, right? Our second reason for asking, though, has nothing to do with the organization. It has to do with that person. We care about them. And the reason we're asking is we're trying to find out where this brother or sister is going to struggle because nearly every single person on this earth struggles with shame. We really ache over shame. And that's Job's second error. The third of our theological errors, Job's second error, is he says, my sin is a permanent stain. It can't be removed. Job chapter 9, uh, verse 27, 27 through 31. Job says, if I said, I'll forget my complaint, change my expression and smile, I would still live in terror of all my pains. I know you'll not acquit me since I will be found guilty. Why should I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, then you'll dip me in a pit of mud and my own clothes will despise me. Now he's right about the wickedness of sin. Job, like every single human, is totally depraved. 
And he is exactly correct that there is no human way to erase our mistakes. We cannot make ourselves clean. It is not possible. And pretending, he's right about this, pretending doesn't make us right. It doesn't undo the penalty of our mistakes and we smile and cock our head cutely. And that doesn't, that doesn't change the fact that we are guilty. And the terror of all our inherent ugliness cannot be ignored. He is right. There is no acquittal possible for sinful people. Not if God's going to remain holy. Like all stinking thinking, this has a lot of truth in it. But it's incomplete. Job stops before the end of the story. Since we all deal with shame, we all want to know, how do I fight through? Well, the solution is, finish the story. Remember God's redemption. Look at the end of the story. That's what Job finally does. Look, uh, Job chapter 19. But I know my living Redeemer, and he will stand on this dust at the last. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. Do you see that? The rest of the story after this life. It's brilliant. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. That may be the most significant phrase in the whole verse. My heart longs within me. How can this be? How can that be? It's because Job has a relationship with God according to God's grace, God's hesed. It is not according to Job's worthiness. God is the redeemer, not Job. God buys Job back. God is alive even after he pays the price for Job's sins. He provides resurrected life even beyond death. Do you see that in verse 26? And he relates to Job as family, not as a stranger. He relates to him as family. How do you get all that old shame out of your mind? Remember God's redemption. Look at the rest of the story. The Apostle Paul has a really neat summary on this. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Because Jesus Messiah took the curse on himself, the God-man made a way for the redemption through which, to which Job is looking forward with longing. My heart longs within me. By trusting Jesus, we live. As Paul, as Paul says, the rest of Galatians 3, the context of Galatians 3 is that our life comes by faith. When we believe on Jesus as payment for our sins, when we trust him who became a curse for us, this is what happens. Psalm 103, verse 12. Everybody read it with me together. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So that's what God has done. And if that's what he's done, who am I to find the penalty of my past sins and try to carry it all over again? What God has removed is removed. All God's people said, amen. amen. So stop letting those old mistakes run around inside your head. Yes, yes, there are consequences to sin here on earth, but there is no penalty. There is no eternal condemnation for those who trust God's Redeemer. I want you to read it again, and, and I'd like you to read it with me this time, and let's let, let's let Job's course correction sink in here. Let the rest of the story sink in. One of the oldest books ever written actually has the truth about the end of things. Fascinating. But I know my living Redeemer. He's alive. He rose from the dead even after paying for all that shame. And he will stand on the dust at the last, even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. Family, not a stranger. My heart 
longs within me. Pray with me, please. Let's pray together. Father, I, I thank you beyond my capacity to express that our Redeemer lives. And I pray for those who don't have a relationship with you, to whom you are a stranger. Please let them see that by trusting Jesus, they are, they are drawn into your family. Sin is forgiven. We can't scrub it off. Only you can remove it. By your grace, your hesed, through faith in Jesus. Friend, if you have never trusted Jesus, please do so right now. It's not paganism. There is no formula. It's not up to what you do. It's what you believe. Trust Jesus who died for you and rose from the dead so that you could have everlasting life. If you believe on Jesus as Savior, if you just today believed on Jesus, you trusted him this morning, raise your hand, please. Raise your hand and let me rejoice with you. Good. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray for all these believers in Christ, new ones and old ones. I thank you that there is a Redeemer who is alive and that our Redeemer guides us through the worst mistakes, pays for them so that we could know you as family. In Jesus' name, thank you. Amen.